Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. want to welcome everybody to this special podcast episode where I have the privilege of interviewing the Reverend Catherine Sonderegger, who is the William Mead Chair of Systematic Theology at Virginia Theological Seminary. For those of you who aren't connected to St. Michael's, my name's John Newton. I'm the rector of this wonderful church, and in this special podcast episode, I speak with Kate about her systematic theology. She has two volumes that have been released in the last several years, and the latest is Volume 2, The Doctrine of the Holy Trinity, Processions and Persons. I personally find Kate's work in systematic theology to be a work of deep prayer that is intellectually really brilliant, but also written from a posture of great humility and love for God. So if you're interested in Kate's work or systematic theology in general, um, I just commend our conversation. Uh, I set this meeting up with Kate, not in order to record a podcast episode, but really just to ask her about her work because I'm personally very interested in it. But I also know a lot of people out there are interested in Kate's work as well. And so I've received her permission to share this conversation with you. I hope you enjoy. So the the first just has to do with volume two and the doctrine of Trinity. And, you know, we're so used to framing that doctrine in terms of the three persons and the way that we often speak of that in modern language, each person, you know, has their own identity and center of consciousness. And, you know, the Trinity is like a big happy family that all gets along. They're one. We don't fully understand it. And of course, you, you point out this is kind of a problematic way of grounding the Trinity that you affirm the persons and, um, but that you say this is really a doctrine of the processions, you know, and and so I think of um, uh, the Son proceeding from the Father, the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. But if you are speaking to an adult forum of Episcopalians who are so used to thinking of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit as these separate entities, which is idolatry. And you are to reframe the doctrine in terms of processions. And someone raised their hand and says, well, what's a procession? <laughs> what, what are you going to say? Well, I think I would start out by saying that one of the central teachings of Israel's scriptures of the Old Testament is that God is a living God. Yeah. Uh, it, it is that that distinguishes Uh, God from idols, um, but also from ideas that we have, uh, um, say the platonic ideal of the good, um, or uh, an abstraction like beauty or truth. Um, God God is uh, dynamic and alive. And to think on that is to think think about procession. Uh, 
that is that there is um, a, um, God's life is not just random. It's it's not simply a, an effusion or overflowing, um, but there's a direction, a, a dynamism, and a and a goal that is part of the livingness of God, and that's what we're talking about when we speak about God as uh, gentle. Oh, there you go. Sorry, I lost the volume for a second. I'm sorry. Oh, right. Do you want me to um, put on um, headphones? I've, I've got some, if that would be better. No, you're fine. Can you hear me okay? Mm-hmm, I can. I think what happened was my AirPods went out. So you were talking about, I, I'm, I'm fine now. You were talking about God is... Uh, not static, not a platonic ideal, but alive, movement, dynamism, fire. Yes, and and that it's not um, it's not random and it's not chaotic, but it is moving toward something. Um, God's life has its own majestic dignity and order. Um, and this is what we mean when we say that God is generative and um, a spiritual outpouring. Um, th this is um, liveliness that has, um, has character or, or uh, what would be called uh, properties that uh, we can recognize this life. And, um, Thinking about that is the way to begin to think about Trinity. Yeah. Um, so again, sorry, my, I think we all during COVID had these microphone issues. Now I'm back on my AirPods. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in speaking of this life, um, you say that the doctrine of the Trinity is about the inner life of God, that this is what we are writing about. And in doing so, you do something that, at least as of late, has been out of fashion. Um, and um, and you, you talk about Moltmann and... Um, uh, in particular, kind of looking at some of the injustices of World War II, that there's this, uh, this reaction that comes from a place of injustice that says, you know, let's not do this speculative theology. Speculative theology has become uh, a bad label that, you know, leads to looking the other way when injustice happens. But instead, you know, for Moltmann, it was looking at the crucified God as a guide to the inner life of God. Um, but I can see how, if you care about justice, people will say, let's look at the economic Trinity, the God who does stuff. And also in today's world, we think of Black Lives Matter, we think of racial injustice. There could be a temptation to say, let's just stop with all this speculative stuff. Let's look at the God who does things. And this is where I'm going to need your help if I read you incorrectly, because I'm not sure if you say everything I'm about to say, because I'm going to infer some things. But although we affirm that passion for justice and theology as something that fuels justice, that actually 
if you start where Moltmann starts, you're actually exasperating the problem because you are beginning with, and not that Moltmann and people do this intentionally, but you are starting with idolatry. You're starting with division and one way or another that might breed division. But if you start with the radical oneness of God, if you start with this imminent life of God, um, that even though you haven't gotten to your doctrine of creation yet, it makes me wonder, certainly there must be some implications for us. Um, and if God is radically one, um, then maybe that barrier between you and me that modernity has sat, set up is, is maybe not as, uh, as solid as we like to think. And that by actually pondering and meditating on the oneness of God and the predicates of God, that might awaken us to a deeper connection between us and maybe fuel some of these justice initiatives we care about. Am I overstretching and saying that? And is that a good reading of your writing? Mm, that's beautiful, John. No, I, I do hope that the um, political uh, outworkings of a position like this might become more and more evident as the volumes unfold. Um, but I certainly do believe that um, a profound reflection upon the reality of God, God's own inner life and supremely God's oneness um, is the um, a proper grounding of a human life and of a, uh, a moral political life. It, uh, some of it is this um, experience of a world as uh, Kant says uh, famously in his first critique that it's, it's really what makes out of um, the disparate and fragmented qualities of the world as we experience it, a, a unified world is the idea of God. And I, I do think that um, the, the significance of God's unicity it, um, is the, the true ground of seeing our own particular kind of unity. It's not the same as God's oneness. Um, and that's where I think social Trinitarianism has not properly safeguarded the, the radical oneness of God. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that our, our own recognition of unity, as you say, in Black Lives Matter, in the uh, recognition of our solidarity uh, now with um, peoples of Asian descent in the United States, uh, um, of those who are the, the lost, the yeah. disenfranchised, that, that's a, a, a profound response to uh, God's unalterable oneness. 
Yeah, thank you so much for that. And and just because I have so many questions, I'll, I'm, I'm going to move on. But one kind of response that I'm just going to keep pondering in your work is, you know, that li- like you said, that that um, it's almost like a shame word to, to anyone who does speculative theology. But but there's a, a deep practicality to knowing God as God is. And I just have this intuition that the more we go into knowing God as one, the more that fuels the justice that we are called to work for in the world in a, in a healthy way. Um, I just, I just love that. So uh, throughout both volumes, I, I have to admit, I, um, I haven't read much Thomas Aquinas since seminary. I don't think I've ever read uh, Duns Scotus. I've read things about him, but I'm a little familiar with some of the wars, I think, between our own being um, and Scotus's idea of university of being and mm-hmm. uh, Thomas's mm-hmm. more uh, analogical predication and um, not going deep into them each. Uh, I, I'm a little, I'm not fluent there, but I, I am curious about how we are to understand our own being. And one of the things that I thought you said towards the end of volume two is that we may have embellished the difference between Scotus and Aquinas mm-hmm. uh, and, that, um, and, and that maybe that, that difference is not as large as we think. And I'm wondering if you can comment on that and say, what, what is university of being? What is uh, analogical predication? Um, how is it that we've embellished the difference between them? And then, if you can, to bring in your understanding of theological compatibilism, because I think that that's a key linchpin to bridging the two. Mm, very well said, John. Yeah, it's wonderful to have such a careful reader of my work. Yeah, yeah I, I follow Alan Walter. Uh, Walter, the uh, great uh, Scotus scholar here, in seeing um, Scotus's position as um, not opposed, it's it's different in emphasis, but not opposed ultimately to to mystic analogy. Um, uh, Scotus says that every analogy rests ultimately on some moment of university. And that seems to me present in Thomas's account of analogy in the Summa, uh, that there are a number of different places where he discusses analogy, but in in that famous um, uh, section in the Prima Pars in the 13th question, there, Uh, It does seem to me that there is a moment of identity um, on which uh, all of the analogies rest. And that's, uh, to me, what what makes Scotus and uh, Thomas uh, teaching similar kinds of things, that, um, that God is the resting point of identity for these these terms that we use and that we use them uh, knowing that 
God has endorsed and, and given them in Holy Scripture. Um, and we do not know exhaustively how they apply, um, but we do so in a, a way that is confident and uh, yeah. grateful. And, it, and it's that that I, I hope to capture in the notion of a metaphysical or a theological compatibilism. Um, that, that God is known as he is, as such, in the words that we use. Uh, and that, uh, the, the advantage from my point of view to this kind of language rather than the more um, technically worked out scholastic ideas of analogy is that it, um, allows us to say that, um, that God is present in the uh, words and uh, concepts, the, the idea, the um, scriptural language that we use, um, but present in his own um, gracious majesty and reserve. So when Paul says um, the um, invisible things of God, his deity and power are known in the visible things that he has made. This I take to be a, um, a golden text for compatibilism. Um, my reading there is that the invisible things remain invisible in their visibility. And this is the way in which um, God is known, but known as mystery, uh, as um, majesty, that this is God's um, utter unicity, his uniqueness. Um, but it, it does mean that we know truly, uh, but we know in the way that uh, a creature knows uh, the, yeah. the givenness of God. That's, that's, that's really brilliant and, and well said. And it makes me wonder, I, I, um, I don't think I'm assuming a doctrine of creation is not volume three. That's not what you're working on now. No, no. Right. Um, um, but I, and which I'm going to be curious to hear about that in a bit, but um, it, it just makes me wonder because uh, I, I, I love, even though right now volume two is fresh, so all my questions are there. I really absorbed and ate up volume one and in particular, you know, God's uh, omnipresent, I mean, very, you know, basic stuff, but revisiting, you know, God being the publican, you said, in God's own universe, being hidden in every moment. You, you kept saying uh, this very one, but it would be in italics and it would almost like catch your attention, like a Zen master with a stick hitting you, you know, like to wake you up to say, oh, God is here, this, this very one. And it just makes me wonder, and you might not have a lot of thoughts at, at this moment, what it is that we can actually say about our being, 
um, and it's just a great mystery um, uh, as God's being is. It just, it just makes me ask questions about what our being is because the modern world offers a particular account of that, but um, you bring us into this deeply theological world that I think would offer a much different account of human beings. So Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that is wonderful. I, I'm just looking over the, the threshold into creation and providence. I'm, I'm working on a paper on providence right now. Um, and I'd, I do think that uh, one of the um, unspeakable gifts that God gives us is that he uh, communicates his perfections um, while retaining his incommunicability. This is is what God alone can do, that he he can um, give us a share in being Mm. um, without uh, becoming um, the world. That's right. And that um that's what what we can't do um we we can give things away we can share things we can hold things but we can't communicate in such a way that they remain our uh, own uh majestic preserve and it's the donation of being that augustine wrote about yes yes yeah. augustine is the great master yeah. Uh, so, uh, so um, this, I think, uh, Augustine absorbs some of these uh, Platonic themes, but, but they become um, Christian teachings once he accepts the um, fact that the world has a beginning. Mm. And, and therefore, um, this this mystery of our own being is tied to the fact that there is a beginning of all things. Yeah. Um, God sustains and guides all things and is is present as this very one now. Um, But the kind of being we have is of a a communicated and frail kind of being. And, and um, it's, it's uh, for that reason that I, I think um, true metaphysical speculative theology is, is the most uh, life-giving and emancipatory use of our intellect um, because we are we are resting in God's changelessness we're, we're actually thinking of something that is not with a beginning and a mortality yeah well and and even to to say metaphysical speculative theology I know what what that means and and those are good words but it's also in reading you just prayer. Mm. I mean, it's metaphysical speculative theology is prayer. It's seeking to um, 
to wrestle with and articulate. And that comes in so, so brilliantly. I mean, one of the things that I have to say at first, Kate, was frustrating when I read volume one, like, but then was really brilliant and I appreciated was because you'd take us to a ledge and then you'd say, we cannot speak any further of this. <laughs> we, you'd say, right. I, I'm taking you here. We must now be silent. I'd be like, no, tell no. us. <laughs> right, right. Say more. Keep going. <laughs> but, but, but you, you realize that if you didn't, it, you'd realize, you, I think that your intuition was that if you were to say more, you'd do one of two things. You'd, you'd either, you know, potentially commit some heresy or create some bind you couldn't get out of, but that's not the real reason. I think it's because you didn't want to dishonor God and you didn't want to say things just to say them. And I think that's that, I don't know if that resonates with you, but that really comes through in reading your writing. I, I feel like I'm reading a prayer. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, Augustine is the great master of this. And so I'm, I'm trying to learn from him here, the, the way in which his uh, most deep theological reflection is joined, um, well, explicitly in the confessions to prayer, but mm -hmm. I think always implicitly, the, the language of the Psalms is just suffused through his writing. And you can see the, the way in which he has, he has taken on his Episcopal office as a kind of monastic office that he, he continues this recitation of the Psalms um, and he um, knows scripture at his fingertips. And it's, it's always just the fabric of what he is, he is saying. And um, that, it seems to me, is how theology should be written. Yeah, well, and, and that's, that's how yours is. Okay, I wanna, I wanna pivot. And um, I'm gonna guess at the, uh, <laughs> the pronunciation, redoublement, uh, yeah, redoublement. Yes, uh -huh. <laughs> is that right? right? I, I figured it would be French and not, te you know, Texas would just be redoublement. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so I'm, I'm first of all, uh, if if you had said, what do you think is, you know, more likely, John, that you will stop being a priest after 10 years and become an NFL football player or that the book of Leviticus will be the foundation of Trinitarian theology? I would have chosen, you know, sending me to the NFL over that. Um, and so you've done I'm it. I'm looking for that day, John. No, <laughs> it's never going to come. But. Um, but so, uh, let me, let me see first, if I can articulate the question and then have you comment, you, you, um, you do something brilliant, but you're very careful. Cause I know that, um, you want to make sure not to come off as, uh, you know, colonizing Israel scriptures or anything that you have this high, high, which is, uh, people are nervous about very nervous about today understandably so. And so you uh, tread very lightly, but also very clearly about how in the first volume, the book of Numbers can be about the inner life of Christ and, the, and, and how now Leviticus can be about the life of the Trinity. And, um, and there's, there's two things I want to ask about. One is the idea 
of a, a qua relationship and what that means. Um, and, you know, so my understanding of that would be um, that um, John Newton is fully a priest but John Newton is not only a priest. I'm a, I'm a dad, I'm a golfer. I do some other things um, uh, that, that in the same way, um, how do I articulate? Maybe the Old Testament is fully Israel scripture, but, but maybe there's more there as well. And so I'm, I'm kind of butchering that. I'm gonna ask for a little explanation on the, the, the qua relationship and also how it relates to this idea of redoublement of actually in the, the there's nothing new. A Christian doctrine doesn't actually add anything new to Israel's teaching. That is, uh, that is a, a new thing for me to hear. Um, and that there's rather a twinning, a, um, like the processions themselves, there is a, a doublement or a remanifestation of something that is both in the past and in the future all at once. And so I'm going to stop there because I'm losing control of the question. But if you could talk about you know, redoublement and a qua relationship and, and how all that fits together, I would just love to listen. Oh, wonderful. Well, you have raised some of the the central um, moves that I try to make in the second volume. So thank you for that, John. I, um, of course, um, the relationship of Christianity to Judaism and to Israel is um, of um, utmost seriousness to me. Um, and I think it is a, a particular Christian obligation to uh, recognize the um, eternal covenant with Israel um, and with the um, dignity and uh, vitality of Israel's scriptures. Um, and, and indeed, part of my aim here in the systematics is to uh, recognize um, the um, scriptures of Israel as teacher, as magistra. And that is how the early church theologians regarded um, scripture is that's where they were going to turn to find out um, how to think about um, Trinity or Christology. It's um, ecclesiology, um, Israel's scriptures, was the great teacher. Um, so, so the question for a Christian theologian who is persuaded that that's true is how is it possible to honor that and also honor the fact that there are Jews who do not recognize uh, the Christian teaching as true. Uh, and, um, and one of the ways that I attempt to do that, as you say so well, is this relation I've, I've borrowed from contemporary philosophy of the as relation, the qua relation. 
So uh, John as priest, John as father. They're both um, wholly and completely you. This is one of the important aspects of the qua relation. It's not a part and part relation. Mm -hmm. It's a whole and whole. So um, you as priest have a, have a certain status and you have what philosophers would call causal powers. There are certain things you can do as a priest that you would not be able to do as a layman, um, mm -hmm. blessing or consecrating um, or um, without special license uh, marrying a couple. That, um, these are powers that you have that inhere in you because of your existence as a priest. And this is not something that's located in you somewhere. There's not some part of you that's priest, but you all together, John Newton, are priest. Now, the same is true of you as father, uh, that you have uh, causal powers and, and in this case, generative powers, uh, children um, who are um, your, your very own. And you have responsibilities to those children and rights um, over their care and their um, schooling their protection that you would not have if they were the children of friends of yours. Um, but that, that again is not located somewhere in you being father, but it is you entirely mm -hmm. as this full human being who is father. Now, um, yeah, the, there are various ways that this qua relationship has been used and there's a, a whole um, relative logic that has grown up out of this um, interesting relationship of the as relation. But, um, but the way I want to use it is in this doubling, redoublement sense. So it's not as though there are two John Newtons. Mm. There's really just one. Yeah. And he is priest and he's father. And uh, nevertheless, those two are not the same. It's not only that they uh, don't have the same causal powers. It's uh, a different state of affairs, a different whole person reality to be a father than to be a priest. Um, and one doesn't entail the other. Um, so um, we have both identity and distinction here. Mm. And these are um, the way in which I think Christians and Jews approach um, what we call the Old Testament. It, it is wholly and completely the scriptures of Israel, and it has its own idiom, um, its own matchless concreteness, uh, it, its own way of 
uh, giving rise to uh, Talmudic and Midrashic commentary. Um, and it is also the church's teacher. Yeah. It, and it has its own um, vocabulary, its, its own uh, referential idiom, um, it, its own um, power as it speaks to the disciples of Jesus Christ. Yeah, wow. And this is, it's identical, but it's distinct. And this I say is ultimately true because these are Trinitarian terms. It, yeah. This is just what we're doing when we're thinking about the processional life and then ultimately about the persons. We're, we're thinking about this um, identity that is doubled or uh, as I sometimes say, twinning, which is yeah. a relation of identity. So uh, this is this is so good. So I just have to ask, you know, I, I don't think it's likely that, that the Bishop of Washington is going to call you into his or her office and, you know, make sure that you're not uh, asking questions to make sure you're not teaching modalism. But if you were called <laughs> into such right. uh, an office and, and asked to give an account is what kind of keeps us away from that, that we're talking about processions and not persons? Uh, was this part of your calculus? And if so, how did you feel like you had to use language to kind of stay away from that place you didn't want to go to? Yes, that, and you were right. I, uh, I thought um, my emphasis upon unity. Yeah. Um, and the uh, focus on the processional life yeah. as fundamentally one um, it, it is in the, uh, the unicity of the divine nature. Um, this, this is the kind of language that you would expect a modalist or a Sibelian to use. Um, and that's why I have a... Um, a longish discussion about Sibelius yeah. there. Um, I, I, I do think that one of the distinctions um, that Sibelius did apparently did not have language for was processional life. Right. He, um, he had, as far as I could tell, something like the, the image that was natural for the ancient world of the sun, its radiance, its light. Um, and they um, appear in the world. They have a, a, a certain um, unity, but, but now you see one facet and now you see the other. Um, and in some such way, the, the persons are, are manifestations of God in the world and these, these differing modes. Uh, and I, uh, I think what is missing there is the processional life that um, grounds and is eternally 
uh, generative and um, and uh, majestic in the life of God. So I would say these these uh, distinctions, this um, eternal generation and inspiration, are one yet distinct, and these are eternally true of God. Uh, and this I I would say is at least not classical modalism. It's and just so you know, I'm just I'm gonna I'm doing this so that whenever you're called into the meeting, I can send the recording and you okay. don't have to go in and they can just no. I I, I, I know that. You spend you spend a lot of time, you do a good job um talking about it. I'm just mindful that, you know, to really uh write about God, I mean the early church um we have many heresies we have to avoid. It's very hard. It's it very hard, hard to say something about God. And, and that's why you do such a, a good job. Um, so um, one question I have, and the, I'll tell you the question behind the question is, uh, are there two processions or infinite processions within the life of God? Um, you have a... Um, so one of the things I love about your work is your relationship with modernity, because on the one hand, you're just not, you're not going to write a volume on epistemology and method. And, you know, you're not going to spend a thousand pages to lose people like me before you dive in. You're going to say, no, nope, we're going to just go straight into it with a doctrine of God and, you know, returning to the patristics. I mean, you really, um, so much of what you have to say is new, but, it's almost a redoublement of the patristics in a sense. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet you really do make use of modern philosophy and concepts in order to, um, uh, to um, um, help us into this mystery. And one of those things that you use for the Trinity is modern set theory, which I've never read modern set theory directly, but in reading your work, my understanding is that it's a, although there's, I'm sure some really complex math behind it, that the simple idea is that the infinite isn't uh, just an idea, but it's actually a mathematical truth in which the infinite parts that fall within that one set uh, have some differentiation, but at the end of the day, it is one set. And so you talk about God being one infinite uh, being, but I think you uh, do use bounded infinity or structured mm -hmm. infinity. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if, if I'm reading, I haven't read set theory, but am I understanding your reading of set theory and application correctly? And if so, when we get to the processions within the one set, the life of God, are we looking at two? Are we looking at infinity or should I not mess with the numbers at all? <laughs> <laughs> that, that is wonderful. And I, I do think I, I, should, I should preface this by saying that I think uh, Thomas is right to speak about uh, a, a divine numerical. Uh, yeah. when, when numbers are applied in God, um, uh, something 
unique and strange happens to those numbers. So I, um, I think it's for that reason that, that Thomas, uh, when he finally moves from procession to person, um, speaks about three, but it's the divine uh, number. It's, it's not, um, that's why there are no parts in God. Um, it, so uh, there is a, a profound simplicity that must govern all of the distinctions within the, the Godhead. And Thomas has various ways of, of handling this. But I think one of them is to say, um, number is going to follow this analogical pattern. It's just, it's not going to apply in a, in a counting sense. Yeah. So I, I try to capture that um, by speaking about how the, the processional life of God is um, one and twofold. That it, it, it is um, generation and spiration, the um, procession of the spirit. Um, but it is principally procession. It is uh, principally this consummation of the uh, of the um, spirit. And this this we might think of as as a as a kind of qua relationship within the Trinity. But I I wanted to propose also. The, the way in which uh, set theory gives us um, uh, another more modern way of thinking about these divine numbers. And uh, Georg Cantor uh, is someone who interests me in the history of mathematics. Um, he, he's someone who, who thinks um, that there is a a true infinity, and that is God. Mm. Um, and then there is the transfinite, these, these uh, infinities that belong in our realm. So already he's got one of these analogical relations, perhaps, between the, the absolute infinite and the transfinite. Um, and in the transfinite, uh, Cantor thought we could um, consider the um, infinite series of numbers, um, which though they can never be uh, fully enumerated, and though we don't have a last one, um, we can nevertheless group them. Mm -hmm. And um, what's uh, more wonderful about these groupings is that to uh, group them in a, in a set is not to add anything to the numbers, uh, but simply to designate them. Mm. So, um, so you could have a, a set of the 
uh, even numbers, the even natural numbers. And you can have, and that is infinite. And you can have a set of the odd integers. And that also is infinite. And they are, that set does not add something to those mm. numbers. It simply yeah. is the numbers designated in this way under this category. Um, and this, um, and notions of, um, of uh, set theory of uh, cardinality and ordinality seem to me uh, particularly helpful when we're thinking about God who is infinite. Um, but God is not infinite in um, what the, um, the ancients thought was uh, a negative way, not having a, a structure or a form. Um, uh, infinity is a, is a positive predicate of God. Mm -hmm. God yeah. is, and in this way is, is structured, is a, a bounded infinity. Um, and these just are the persons. Um, yeah. And these are not um, adding to God. They right. simply are God um, under a particular personal property, as we call it. God, it's, it's brilliant. It, it, it makes me... Um... So whenever we were at uh, VTS together, and, and I know that the impression one has of a teacher is always just a, an impression. It's never the fullness, but um, I did get to my senior year, Kate, if you remember, it was my, my favorite year of seminary in the spring. We worked on an honors thesis together, and then we did an independent Indeed. study on uh, Jeremiah and Hosea. And that's really all I did my last semester. It was just like, hang out on my dorm, read, and then come talk to you. It was the, it was the greatest. Uh, and I thought it was wonderful too. It was, it was a lot of fun, but I remember, um, you had me read a lot of Bart. Uh, and my impression of you was that, you know, Kate's a Bart, you know, she, she likes Carl Bart and what Carl Bart says is what Kate's going to say. And, and, uh, Carl Bart and Kate are two, you know, two peas in a pod. But then, and then I'm kind of reading this, and I have this image of, of like this moment in your theological life where it's, um, you know, you kind of have an angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, and they're both <laughs> whispering. I have this image of, of you know, uh, Cantor over here and Bart over here, and you know, Carl Bart saying. Don't do it, Kate. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then you throw Bart off your shoulder. You start reading set theory and and there you go. But it is interesting, not only because you don't ground your work uh, in Christology as Bart does, uh, but also because there's a, um, a relationship with the modern world and some of the things people are wrestling with. Um, that you're comfortable there and you're, you're comfortable with the patristics, you're comfortable with modern set theory. And it, it feels very integrated to me. And I just, that's just a comment about reading your work. Cause in the past, I feel like people, they only live in one of those worlds. Either they just have contempt for modernity and all they want to talk is, you know, about Augustine and Irenaeus 
um, or Aquinas, or they just have no time for the patristics because that's all a bunch of ancient mythology. And we know better now because we're enlightened. And you just bring them all together in a way that I don't think anyone I've read ever has. Mm-hmm. Thank you, John. That is very high praise. I, I do think we should be confident as Christians. We, um, we should look at the modern world with a, a particular kind of, of openness that is born of this confidence. Um, because I think the, um, the ancient teaching of the church is ever fresh, um, ever dynamic, um, and God is providentially um, at work and overseeing and guiding his community. And I, uh, so I think we should have um, something of the attitude that, that I, I saw in Augustine. Um, and it was, it was he that, that made despoiling the Egyptians uh, just a standard part of theology that you, you just, you find things that you have learned from the modern world uh, that help clarify what it is that the ancient faith teaches. Um, and I think actually there is a good bit of that openness in Bart as well. Mm-hmm. He's, um, he can be read as a reactionary. Um, But I think that's not actually his temperament. I think his his temperament was to be um, interested in what the contemporary world was um, witnessing to and uh, and he um, he read a great deal in in modern fiction and theater. Um, he he um, he knew modern philosophy quite well. Yeah. Uh, he's um, he's deceptively antiquarian. Yeah, that's that's, and and you. I mean, I I don't know anyone, I I, I imagine there's maybe five people on the planet who have read Bart more than you. And so I think, you know, maybe two people on the planet, maybe zero people on the planet. So that's a, that's a a good word in knowing his temperament. I guess I'm mindful of time and I want to honor yours. I just have to ask what, um, what's volume three going to be about? And, and I'm just going to ask ahead, what's volume four going to be about? (laughs) That's right. So um, volume three is taking the uh, processions into the missions. So the missions of the son and the spirit. Mm. So it it will be three volumes on the doctrine of God, really. I I want uh, Christology and pneumatology to be seen as a part of the doctrine of God. Right. And Trinitarian teachings fundamentally. Um, so um, volume four is a, a chance to um, finally uh, hear about us, um, yeah. about creation, um, providence, um, 
the the workings of God in the world. Um, and I, I'm, yeah, I'm so excited about that, about both. That's really, really neat. Well, I just want to, um, I want to say thank you, you know, not just for your time, but also for your work, because uh, I don't know what it's like. I know that, um, that I know that this is a life's work and that you sit down at the computer like any writer. And sometimes you're probably just, it, you're, you're, it's, you just can't, you can't stop and it's going, but there's also moments where you're outlining and you're wrestling and you think you're on to something, then you have to go back and, you know, you don't just sit down and, and write a, a systematic theology like you write an email, that this is the culmination of a life's work and that whenever you sit down to do it, it's really hard and that the moments of flow are the exception rather than the rule. And so uh, to the extent that you need the encouragement, I just want you to know that your work means a lot to me. Um, that um, kind of some of the things that you're doing in terms of reclaiming the question of being and metaphysics, but still being, um, and I don't know if you'd see yourself this way, but like very evangelical and passionate mm -hmm. about God and unashamed about scripture. Uh, I've often felt like I have to choose between those two. Right. And um, I don't feel like I have to choose anymore. And so uh, I just want to say thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, John. I, I deeply appreciate that because indeed um, writing is, a, it's a labor of love, but it is a labor and it is uh, genuine work and it is, and it should be, uh, it should be the, the most demanding thing we ever do is think yeah. the idea of God. So I, I am particularly grateful to be encouraged and to know that um, there's one person on the planet who is reading this and saying, these disparate parts are getting put together. And that's, um, that's what I think theology should do. It's a, it's a gathering of those fragments and, um, and showing their unity before God.